And good morning, church family. Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Colossians. Book of Colossians, chapter 2, and we're looking at verse 8 today. As always, I'll begin in a word of prayer, and then we'll consider the text together. Let's pray. Lord, once more, we are grateful that we can gather together as a church family and to enjoy these hours together and to learn together from your word. We pray that you would open our hearts, that we might be receptive to this message. Pray that you would give us understanding and eagerness to apply it. Lord, we pray for those who are away, for Pastor Scott as he ministers in Africa, for those who are sick and watching from home. Lord, would you bless them? Would you bring them back safely to us again soon? Lord, we, we commit all of these requests to you, and we pray them in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Now, earlier this month, 17 Christian missionaries were taken hostage near Port-au-Prince, Haiti, while they were serving at an orphanage. An aide to the Prime Minister of Haiti explained that the missionaries had been ambushed by a heavily armed group of men from a gang known as 400 Mawazo. The gang promptly placed a $1 million price tag on the head of each missionary. As I speak to you now, these missionaries are still being held captive, and the gang is threatening to kill them all if they don't get the money soon. Now, this is a horrific story, and unfortunately, stories like this can be found all over the world. All you have to do is go to a popular Christian news site, begin to scan through the headlines, and you will find stories like this everywhere. But friends, there is also another form of hostage-taking that is just as deadly, but it is often treated with far more indifference. And that's what we're going to talk about today. This is the capture of Christian minds by non-Christian systems of thought. The consequences of this kind of kidnapping are devastating. Every year it leads to the loss of individuals, families, churches, colleges, seminaries, missions agencies, and adoption agencies, which were once faithful to the gospel, but now they have been lost to the prevailing culture. The result is that the work of God is hindered in the world, the people of God are forced into retreat, and God does not receive the glory that he deserves from his people. Just consider Harvard University as a classic example. Harvard was founded by Congregationalist ministers in 1636 for the purpose of training the next generation of pastors and missionaries. One of the school's original documents was entitled Rules and Precepts, and here's what it says in part, quote, let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well that the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, who is eternal life, and therefore to lay Christ in the bottom as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. And seeing the Lord only giveth wisdom, let everyone seriously set himself by prayer in secret to seek it from him, 
That's from Harvard University. Here's another quote from that document. Everyone shall so exercise himself in reading the Scriptures twice a day that he shall be ready to give an account of his proficiency therein, both in theoretical observations uh, of language and logic and in practical and spiritual truths, as his tutor shall require according to his ability, seeing that the entrance of the word giveth light. It giveth understanding to the simple. In 1692, Harvard adopted this Latin motto, Veritas Christo et Ecclesiae, truth for Christ and his church. Those words were emblazoned on the school shield. That same shield also depicted three books, two facing up, one facing down, depicting the limits of human reason and the need for divine revelation. But if you know anything about Harvard today, you know that it has fallen far from its original mission. Harvard University today is not just non-Christian, it is actively anti-Christian in its posture. To share just one example among hundreds, recently Jackie Hill Perry was invited to speak to a Christian group on campus. The group is called Harvard College Faith in Action, also known as HCFA. And if you're not familiar with Jackie Hill Perry, she is an African-American woman who was active in the LGBT movement, but then she came to faith in Christ. So she repented of all of that, became a, a very faithful believer, and now she travels widely sharing her Christian testimony. She was invited by this college Christian group on Harvard's campus to come and speak to them. During the talk, Perry shared her testimony, and then she encouraged her fellow Christians to stay committed to biblical morality. Well, her speech caused a massive uproar on campus. Protests were organized by students and faculty alike. One professor in the Divinity School said this, quote, the history of this speaker and the things that she keeps promoting are things that basically alienate and threaten the existence of queer students on campus. Now think of that. This statement's being made by a professor at the Divinity School. And he is declaring that a Christian woman who teaches Christian things to a group of Christian believers on their campus is threatening the existence of other human beings. Not long after this event, the HCFA was placed on administrative probation by Harvard. Harvard then told them that if they continued running their organization according to biblical standards, the group would be permanently disbanded. Now, how did Harvard get from where it started to where it is today? Well, friends, it happened this way. Christian minds were seized and carried off as plunder by anti-Christian systems of thought. Didn't all happen at once. It was a slow, gradual process over many years of non-Christian ways of thinking infecting the minds of professing Christian people and the cumulative effect over many years led an institution that was once 
established to train Christian leaders, now actively opposing Christian thought. So how do we Christians guard ourselves and our institutions from this same trajectory? We don't want history to repeat itself among us. Well, friends, the Apostle Paul answers this question right here in Colossians chapter 2. Now, if you haven't been here in a number of weeks, let me just take a moment to set the context for this chapter. Okay, so the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Colossians to a fledgling little church in a city called Colossae. That's how Colossians got its name. This little church had been started by a man named Epaphras, and it had started out strong. This group of believers had a a very confident faith in Christ. They had very deep love for one another, and they also had an effective outreach into their city. But as this church's influence began to grow, they also began to attract a lot of unwanted attention. And soon a group of people with very different ideas about God and the Christian life began to infiltrate this church. And they began to peddle all kinds of non-Christian ideas and practices. There was great diversity among these, these different teachings, but it all basically came down to this. They were trying to convince the church of Colossae that Christ was not sufficient. Not sufficient to secure their salvation, not sufficient for life and godliness, not sufficient to give them wisdom for living in a complex world. Christ was not sufficient for any of it. And these teachers of false doctrines used a number of tactics to try to persuade the church to adopt their systems of thought. They told this church that they were not smart if they they rejected their thoughts. In other words, accept our ideas or we'll start telling people you guys are dum-dums. Another strategy was claiming that they had the moral high ground so that if the church of Colossae did not embrace these new teachings and, and find a way to accommodate the gospel with these new teachings then they were also morally corrupt. All of the moral people embrace our way of thinking. You're a deplorable if you don't. Now, as you can imagine, this was causing great distress for the church of Colossae. I mean, they loved Christ. They wanted to be committed to him, but they didn't want to be known as dum-dums, and they didn't want to be known as moral reprobates. So should they adopt these teachings? Have they gotten Christ wrong all this time? Is he indeed not sufficient for salvation and life and godliness? These were the things that were racing through their minds. And the Apostle Paul saw what was happening in the church of Colossae, and he was so concerned about it that he stopped what he was doing to write this book, book we now call the book of Colossians. This book was written to help the church of Colossae get back on track. We've been working our way through this book for a number of months now, and this week we are in Colossians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul's words here in this chapter answer the question of how we can protect the integrity of our Christian minds when faced with intellectual challenges. The first part of Paul's answer came last Sunday when we were in verses 6 and 7. Here's what Paul said there. 
Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding with thanksgiving. So, do you want to protect your Christian mind from the influence of non-Christian systems of thought? Here's the first thing to do. You take the gospel of Christ, which you received in all of its purity, according to the teachings of the apostles, you take that and you root your life in it. And you build your life up in it. You absolutely, mentally, and spiritually commit yourself to that teaching such that your very identity gets wrapped up with Christ. That's the first thing to do. But then now in verse 8, Paul gives us the second part of our defense. He says, here, we must also keep our minds on guard. We've got to be aware that there are non-Christian systems of thinking out there, that they are capable of transforming our ways of thinking. We've got to be aware of that and then stand guard against it. And we see this at the very beginning of the verse. So Paul writes here, verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy or empty deceit. You'll notice the highly dramatic language here. I mean, the Apostle Paul equates the intellectual takeover of a Christian mind by non-Christian thinking with the act of kidnapping. So this is not a matter for us to be indifferent about. It is a deadly, serious issue. And Paul wanted to make sure that no professing Christian would ever fall victim to this. And so he says to them, see to it that nobody takes you captive You see, you don't have to be a victim here. It is possible for a Christian to stand up against those non-Christian systems of thought, to resist the tactics that are employed to get you to embrace those thoughts. But it begins with standing watch over your own mind. That's what the the, the phrase see to it means. It means be constantly alert or watchful so that you don't fall prey to it. And the key to success here, according to Paul, is to know what kinds of ideas to be on the lookout for. And so Paul spends the remainder of this verse giving us descriptions of these kinds of dangerous ideas so that we can identify them and then avoid them. He discusses their nature and their source. So let's look at these together. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive by, here's the kinds of thoughts to avoid, by philosophy and empty deceit. Okay, let's start with those two. Philosophy and empty deceit. Now, what is philosophy? Well, in Paul's day, uh, the word philosophy was a very broad term that could describe just about any system of thought related to God, the world, or the meaning of life. But what makes philosophy particularly dangerous is that all of the ideas it comes up with about God and the world and and the meaning of life are derived independently of divine revelation. And this is the opposite way in which Christian ideas are formed. So Christian ideas are formed through theology. 
Theology is something very different. See, in theology, we develop our understanding of God, the world, and the meaning of life from the pages of sacred scripture, which we are convinced are the revealed words of God. And so, in other words, when we Christians seek to shape our worldviews, we depend upon God to interpret his universe to us. And the goal of a Christian is to learn how to think God's thoughts after him. So God speaks to us through his sacred scriptures, and he says, this is what I am like. And so now we learn to think about God as he thinks about himself. And God says, here's what the world is like. We learn to think about the world the way God sees it. And God says to us through his word, this is the true meaning of life. And so we receive that, and we come to, to understand the meaning of life the way that God has interpreted it for us. See, this is how Christians develop their systems of thought. We are dependent upon the revelation of God to shape the way that we think. But in philosophy, the Bible is set aside. And instead, finite, sinful creatures are encouraged to concoct their own ideas about God, the world, and the meaning of life from out of their own heads. And as you would expect, what they come up with is, always, is almost never the same as what God has revealed in his word. Oftentimes, in fact, the conclusions of philosophers will directly contradict the revelation of God in his word. So Paul says we need to stand on guard against this. We need to guard our Christian minds against ideas that have derived from the minds of men who have not been guided by the revelation of God. Guard yourself against the philosophies of men. Then the second descriptor he gives here is empty deceit. Now, what what is an empty deceit? Well, these are statements about God, the world, or the meaning of life that have a superficial appearance of wisdom. But in reality, they are devoid of any spiritual, moral, or intellectual value. So, an empty deceit is a, is a truth claim that somebody offers you. And at first hearing, you say, you know, that kind of has a ring of truth to it. I can see that, that, that uh, there, is, there is something there. But then as you look into it more deeply, perhaps you look at the underlying presuppositions of the truth claim. You see its real nature. You conclude, oh, that is of no value to me at all. It is not grounded in the revelation of God. See, once again, these are ideas not guided by God's words, and thus they will lead people astray. So, friends, the the point in all of of Paul's words here is that there are lots of ideas floating around in the world. Some of them are good ideas. Some of them are bad ideas. Some of them are true. Some of them are false. Paul is explaining that the very best ideas are the ones grounded in God's revelation. Ideas that come directly from it or that are necessary inferences of it. The very worst ideas are the ideas that come out of people's heads who have not been dependent upon the framework of Scripture. They are ideas that they came up with out of their own limited and sinful natures. 
Ideas that almost always contradict the revelation of God. Paul says we must be on guard against these kinds of ideas, lest our minds be taken captive by them and our families and churches thus be ruined by them. Now Paul goes on with three more descriptions. He says, ideas to be avoided are also, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So now let's take these three one at a time. First, bad ideas are according to human tradition. Simply means that they are, they are ideas which have accumulated in the minds of fallen men over time. Again, not ideas that have come from above, but they're ideas that come from below. And over the years, people have, have added to them, modified them, tweaked them, but they are still utterly separate from and not dependent upon God's revelation to us. The next description, thoughts that are according to the elemental spirits of the world. Now, this is an incredibly hard statement to translate. In fact, the New American Standard says the elementary principles of the world. The King James Version says according to the rudiments of the world. So it's not exactly clear what Paul is saying here, but I think the basic meaning of it is easy enough to understand. Paul is saying here we need to avoid ideas that are founded upon base or sordid or primitive thinking not according to God's thinking. Once again, ideas that do not come from above, but they're ideas which come from below. We need to avoid those kinds of thoughts. And then finally, and this is what really ought to be decisive for a Christian, he says, ideas that are not according to Christ. Not according to Christ. Ideas that either directly conflict with the teachings of Christ or whose implications would run contrary to the implications we would draw from the teachings of Christ. Remember, the book of Colossians has already established that in Christ we have all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That means all we need is in Him. So any way of thinking that is not congruent with the wisdom that Christ has given us, this is not useful information for a Christian. So to summarize this whole section then, the Apostle Paul is telling us that there is a real and present danger that we need to be aware of. There are ways of thinking that are sub-Christian and anti-Christian. Thoughts which will make a victim of you if you embrace them. And what are these ideas? Well, they're ideas rooted in human philosophy, ideas that are empty deceits, ideas according to human tradition, according to the elementary principles of the world. They're, they're thoughts that are not according to Christ. And he says here that we can choose not to be influenced by those bad ideas. 
It is possible for a Christian mind to guard its integrity such that it maintains a robustly biblical worldview, one that is thinking God's thoughts after him and not one that is an amalgam of Christ's mind and the mind of sinful men. We can protect ourselves from that. And thus we can preserve ourselves and our institutions for the long term. The key is to be able to identify those systems of thought for what they really are. To be able to discern what is of Christ and what is not of Christ. And then to make the choice, I will be influenced by Christ's way of thinking. I will not be influenced by what isn't of Christ. So back to the example of Harvard. How did they get from where they started to where they are now? Well, very simply, the leaders of that school did not guard their minds as the Apostle Paul instructed them. And as I noted before, it didn't happen all at once. This was a slow, gradual process taking generations to reach where we are today. But a little accommodation, and then a little more, and then a little more, until all the mental space had been filled with the philosophies and empty deceits of men. There was no longer room for the wisdom of Christ. In the case of Harvard, we could trace it all the way back to the European Enlightenment. I'm going to have to oversimplify things because of the nature of our, our time But immediately after the Protestant Reformation took off, there was a follow-up movement in Europe called the Enlightenment. And here's what a stream of the Enlightenment began to say. They said, boy, look, look at the awful state of Europe. We've got Catholics and we've got Protestants. And then on the Protestant side, we've got all these different denominations emerging. And they're all trying to settle their differences with appeals to Scripture. It's a battle over the right interpretation of God's Word. And they began to say, you know what? Maybe the Scripture isn't the best foundation to be building upon. Because these people just can't seem to be agreeing on it. And so they came up with a new idea. The idea was, instead of trying to build our society on the foundation of God's revelation, let's build our society on our own human reason. They said, let us get together and let us reason together. Surely we can come up with with a way of, of moving our civilization forward that isn't mired in all those disputes about Bible interpretation, one that is instead grounded in human reason. The the question of the day was, what seems reasonable to the average human mind? This idea didn't remain in Europe. It trickled over into the new world, and in time it would set a whole new trajectory for Western civilization. What seems reasonable to believe This idea began to infect the Congregationalist ministers who oversaw Harvard University. And eventually it affected Harvard itself. You know, it didn't take many decades after its founding for this to begin to take hold. They began to reassess Christian doctrine. They looked at things like the doctrine of the Trinity, 
which says God is one in essence, but three in person. And they said, you know, that doesn't make sense to the rational mind. How can God be one in three? They said, it's not reasonable, so let's not insist on it anymore. They looked at the doctrine of Christ's substitutionary atonement, which says that Christ being God and man could offer a once and for all sacrifice for sinners. One man's, one man's punishment could serve for all people. You know, the leaders of Harvard said, that doesn't seem reasonable to us. How can one man substitute for others? Let's not insist on that anymore either. And then they looked to the scriptures themselves. We believe that the scriptures are written by men who were inspired by God, such that the words they wrote were God's very thoughts for us. But the leaders of Harvard said, you know, we, we can understand men writing documents. We can't understand how God could inspire a man to write a document. It's not reasonable to us. Let's not insist on that one anymore either. And on and on it went right through all of the categories of systematic theology. They tried desperately to preserve Christian morality because to them, Christian moral principles were very reasonable. But they systematically dismantled the foundation for that morality, the doctrine that makes that morality make sense. Then in the 1800s, a man named Charles Darwin came along who had a whole new way of thinking about human nature. Christians have always taught that that humanity is a direct creation of God, that he breathed life into the first human beings and made them in his image. And this is what separates humanity from the animal kingdom. It's what gives a special dignity to men and women made in the image of God. But Charles Darwin came along with a a new idea. He said, that old Christian idea doesn't seem reasonable to me. He said, what does seem reasonable is that we humans came about through natural processes. Without, Without the involvement of God, lower forms of life were able to become higher forms of life so that we are nothing more than animals at the apex of the evolutionary ladder, but nothing more than animals. You know, the leaders of Harvard heard that new idea, and they said, you know, that does seem reasonable to us. So off went the doctrine of the image of God and man, and here arose man and woman as accidental products of time and chance and random mutation. Man is an animal, not as an image bearer of God. Then a little bit later, a man named Karl Marx came along with a whole new way of understanding human history. In the Christian understanding, here's how history goes. History is the story of God creating a perfect paradise. Humanity rebelling against God and going their own way, thus bringing the world under the curse of sin and death. But then God, in His grace, determined that He would not allow this world to remain broken. He would redeem it. He would reverse the effects of sin's curse. 
And so we understand world history as the progression of God's work of redeeming broken humanity, reclaiming them as his own through the work of his son Jesus. Well, Karl Marx came along and said, that doesn't make any sense to me. Here's what makes sense. The real history of the world is a history of the struggle between the oppressors and the oppressed. It's a class struggle. And the goal of history is for all of the oppressed to gather together in a great coalition and have a revolution that overthrows the oppressors and they become the new leaders. And the oppressor class is kept in a permanent subservient state. See, that's the new history of the world. And the leaders of Harvard University said, that sounds reasonable to us. And so no longer was history about God's plan to redeem a fallen humanity. Now history was about the eternal conflict between oppressors and oppressed. And the goal was to help the oppressed rise up against the people doing them wrong. Then a little after Marx came a man named Sigmund Freud, who had a radical new idea about what it means to be human. Traditionally, Christians have said that our, our fundamental identity as human beings is that we are image bearers of God. That is who we are at our deepest level. That's where our dignity comes from. Well, Sigmund Freud said, no, human beings are at their core fundamentally sexual animals. That's what we are. Right from the time of birth. And so Freud, father, father of modern psychoanalysis, he developed a series of stages, beginning at birth, going all the way through to adulthood, to demonstrate how we are fundamentally sexual beings from the start, and then how we manifest that at each stage of life. So at the very beginning of life, a, a baby learns how to, how to breastfeed. For Freud, that was their first way of learning how to express themselves sexually. Then a baby reaches the toddler years, and they begin potty training. And for Freud, this was the next way that a baby learns how to express itself sexually. And through each stage of childhood, going right on through adulthood, this sexual animal is learning new things, engaging in self-discovery, until finally they reach mature adulthood when they have determined what their true sexuality is. And that is their ultimate identity. And the leaders of Harvard University said, yeah, that sounds reasonable to us. And so instead of looking at men and women and saying, these are image bearers of God. They look at men and women and say, these are sexual animals who need to discover their sexuality. Then the 1960s rolled around, then the 70s and 80s, and the followers of Darwin and the followers of Marx and the followers of Freud all kind of got together and they gave us the sexual revolution and the radical left. And Harvard says, this all seems reasonable to us. After all, Darwin made sense, and Marx made sense, and Freud made sense. It makes sense now to combine these philosophies into one, and now to implement their philosophies. 
course, by this time, a traditional Christian morality no longer seemed reasonable to Harvard. Now Harvard was controlled by a totally secularized worldview. The Harvard of today believes that this entire universe is the accidental product of time and chance and random mutation, that human beings are animals, rather destructive animals at that, that at the core of our beings we are sexual creatures, and that the long history of the world is that our sexuality has been oppressed, along with our race and our class and everything else. We've been oppressed. And so what is the goal of history that, that Harvard is trying to achieve? Well, it's to bring all of these oppressed classes together, the oppressed races and class groups, the oppressed sexual minorities, to bring them all together, to teach them how to rise up against their oppressors, take the levers of power, and keep their former oppressors into a permanently subservient position. And you know what's at the heart of that? The Church of Jesus Christ. An institution that was once founded to teach Christian ministers how to spread the gospel and build churches is now dedicated to the overthrow of Christianity, at least its traditional forms. You know, friends, the story of Congregationalism and of Harvard University has been repeated in virtually every mainline denomination in America. The United Church of Christ, the PCUSA, the American Baptist Churches USA, the United Methodist Church, the Episcopal Church in America, along with all of the colleges, seminaries, missions, and adoption agencies that they founded, they have all succumbed to this. They've lost the gospel and the Great Commission. They've lost everything distinctively Christian about them because they did not heed Paul's words to root their lives in Christ, to build their lives upon the foundation of Christ, and then to stand watch so that none of the ideas that are hostile to Christ would make their way into their minds, thus leading them away. That's how it happened. My friends, let us not make the same mistake. Let us be knowledgeable about the thought systems of our day, but not derive our wisdom from them. Let us be informed, but not interested. Let us know the times we're living in, but commit to deriving our wisdom from the Bible, God's words to us. Let us be careful about what we Christians allow into our minds. According to every survey that I've seen, there is no difference between what a non-Christian in our culture chooses to listen to on the radio, watch on television, watch on the movies, and what a Christian does. No difference between the two. You know, the trouble with that is that all of these media, whether it's radio, television, computer, social media, movies, they're all passive media. We just plop down and we just take it in. It doesn't require critical reflection. We're filling our minds with things that are not according to Christ. Surely this is one of the reasons why so many young adults leave the church. We must be careful 
about we fill what we fill our minds with. Let us also learn to see through the tactics of our intellectual opponents. We know how they worked in the church of Colossae. They're going to work the same way today because these are the most effective ways to get another person to embrace your system of thought. Tell them if they don't embrace it, they're dumb. Nobody wants to be thought of as a dummy. Or tell them if they don't embrace it, they're not moral. Nobody wants to be thought of as a reprobate. Same tactics today. What do you do when someone says to you, embrace this new secular ideology or you are a hater or you are deplorable? What should you do? The answer is so simple. You say, listen, my Lord Jesus Christ is a man with perfect righteousness. All of his words are true and good and beautiful. And if your words oppose his, it can't, be, it can't be him that's immoral. It must be you. Something's gone wrong in the way that you think. You've embraced a folly. I will choose to stand with Christ, my righteous Lord. That's how you respond. And when someone says, embrace this, or everybody's going to think you're a dum-dum, you say, then so be it. The Lord Jesus Christ is maker of heaven and earth. He knows how his universe came to be. He knows how it works. I will align my mind with his. Let the changing philosophies of this world continue to change. I will stay the same. This is how we respond to the spirit of our age. Finally, friends, since our children do not yet have fully developed minds to be able to discern good from bad and, and true from false, let us be especially protective of our small kids. Let us fill their minds with godly things through family worship by bringing them to church. Let us be extra careful about the educational and entertainment choices we make for them. Let's teach them how to, to discern right from wrong at the earliest possible age so that they will grow up not being tempted by the bankrupt philosophies of the day. My friends, what's at stake here is whether or not we will pass the Christian faith down to the next generation intact, whether the gospel will be preserved, whether our own legacies will be legacies of spiritual life or spiritual death. Friends, let us not be taken hostage. Let us guard ourselves. Preserve this precious deposit we've been given. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time you've given us to consider your word. Pray that you would help us to develop those powers of discernment so that we can identify the philosophies and empty deceits of our age, those things that are according to human tradition, the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ, not according to the word of Christ. Help us, Lord, to protect the integrity of our Christian minds, that we might preserve ourselves and our church and all of the institutions that our church has partnered with to carry out the Great Commission. Lord, let not history repeat itself in our case. 
We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.